And we're all dancing here in the studio to that very funky intro music to the Fuzzy Logic Sideshow. My guest here, Rebecca, is... Uh, oh, she's doing a little bop across the studio floor. Rebecca Kay from National Science Week and a great pleasure to have you here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, a great, a great pleasure. Now, it's appropriate that we've got you here in the studio because our theme today is great women scientists. <laughs> and uh, we're going to bring to you the story. They're very interesting and slightly, slightly sad, slightly tragic story of Hedy Lamarr. Uh, the more inspirational story of Dorothy Hill, a great Australian women scientist, of course. We've got an interview with uh, another Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Davy from uh, Arthritis Australia, who uh, features in our Ask Fuzzy column on the story of arthritis. What is arthritis? And I'm going to bring you a interview that I've recorded uh, with Professor Andrew Blakers on the story of pumped hydro which is very topical at the moment. But first, let's, uh, let's get to know our guest. Rebecca, your uh, background is in uh, science. You have a science degree and you're with National Science Week. Tell me about your degree, first of all. First of all, so I am a proud Canberran. I was uh, born and raised here and uh, made sense that I went on to study at ANU. I studied a range of things there, from genetics to zoology. But in my honours, I picked my favourite professor, Professor Patrick De Decker, and I moved to the Research School of Earth Sciences and did a honours degree in micropaleontology. Oh, micropaleontology. Try <laughs> saying that with a few drinks. Now, what, what is micropaleontology? It's a good question. It's hard to spell. But I looked at uh, foraminifera. So they are plankton. And for my honours project, we looked at how foraminifera changed over the last 360 years in the Australian Southern Ocean. And we looked at how that the assemblages of foraminifera um, varied and how we could look at things like sea surface temperature. Oh, so climate change, global climate warming. Change. And of course all reflected in uh, ocean temperature and so on and ocean life. Now, the word you just used, foraminifera? Foraminifera. Foraminifera. So okay. they can, are can, you break, can you break that down for me? To um, fellow micropaleontologists, uh, they are forams, because foraminifera is hard to spell, and they are microscopic um, plankton. And the reason we use them to look at things like sea surface temperature is that they are very sensitive to... Um, their environment so certain species live only in certain temperatures or um, with certain nutrients in the water when you can look at them because they deposit in the sediment in the seafloor so basically I went on an amazing voyage from Perth all the way around to Hobart I got very seasick, but we collected a lot of awesome sediment from oh, the bottom I, of the seafloor. I have to interrupt you for a moment, Rebecca, because, uh, listener, you should see the big glow on Rebecca's <laughs> face as she describes the, this, this story. So this journey from, from where again? From Perth. We to, set off yeah. to Hobart yeah. through the Southern Ocean, yeah. which, if you know anything about boat travel, is not necessarily the calmest one if you're... Uh, partial to a bit of seasickness. So you've got the, is the roaring 40s across there? That the, would be the, the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and then what, what was the nature of the research? So um, my professor was looking into, he's interested in the quaternary period, so he was looking at sort of how the last few hundred years, how um, humans have kind of 
well that's the long game but how the climate has varied in the last few hundred years and using things like um, the sea surface temperature is a diff there's not much study on that in the southern hemisphere so part of what his larger grant was to look at how um, that's varied here and how it compares to the northern hemisphere. So were you dragging nets or scooping these stuff out of the water or were you going for sediments? We were going for sediments so right. we have a, something called a multicorer which is a really cool bit of kit and we, there was only one in the southern hemisphere and we had it on board with us and what happens is you lower it very slowly to the bottom of the seafloor so you pick up the sediment and it remains in strata. Strat I can't oh, so say you it. try not to disturb it, in other words. That's much, right. right. So you keep it all the layers as they would have been when they fell to the uh, seafloor. Is this the shallow surface or the deep surface? The shallow surface, okay. which right. is something that's not often done. So we got the top sort of 15, 20 centimetres worth of sediment. Which could be quite soft and, and, and mobile, right? Very, very sludgy. So yeah. when you get it up... Um, it comes up in these long tubes and you have to very carefully divide it into segments. Then that takes you take it back to the lab and you look at things. Um, heaps of people all over the world worked on those samples and doing things from dating it using um, a really interesting technique with metals. Um, that was not my forte. <laughs> I just used the lovely work to do that. And I spent my year looking down a microscope, counting different types of forams. So it was really cool. A worm? No, so forams, sorry, foraminifera. I was getting into the lingo there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they're really pretty microscopic um, structures under the microscope. So, um, oh, so many questions. Um, <laughs> what sort of period? So if it's on the surface, it's quite recent stuff. So like That's from right. present day back to maybe, what, 100 of years, 200 years? 360 so? was our oldest core that we gathered that that. Um, voyage. Okay. Yeah. And then you're looking at the sample and you're what you're counting the, 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 the numbers yep. that appear in various layers? That's right. So the number of different forums um, in each layer. There's uh, some people in um, New Zealand who've come up with a really complicated formula to look at the number of each foram. So if there's, you know, 50 of this type of foram and maybe only a few of this other type, how can you um, tell the sea surface temperature from that assemblage of forams? So it's something that was actually used, it's been used for uh, a long time and is sort of more of a historical technique. Obviously these days we have things like carbon dating and fancy metal dating and um, but, but, uh, but it's an indicator of what's going on right. in, in the ocean and the temperature. Is, how much is it affected by the chemistry because carbon pollution, acidification, is, is that a factor as well? It certainly is. And actually the nutrients is sort of uh, more important for forearms because they only like certain, uh, some like high nitrogen, some like low nitrogen. Um, but certainly talking about carbon acidification, it is a bit of a concern that they are structures that can be impacted by um, the rising acidification of the oceans. In fact, if you think of the cliffs of Dover and the, the white cliffs of Dover, so they are made up of structures similar to what I was working on for my own. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, of course, we on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking about Mary Anning, the great uh, fossil that's hunter, right. but that's, that's, that's a diversion of another great woman scientist, under-recognised in her day, but an enormous contribution. Um, you, your, your story reminds me of my own story, which is 
a little bit less glamorous, <laughs> but uh, my, my probably my only real experience in uh, scientific data collecting firsthand was my friend was doing some research on the impact of Threadbow on the Threadbow River and particularly the Threadbow sewage works. And so <laughs> it was like this time of the year, there's snow all around the banks and we had to wade into the river. Uh, wearing uh, wading gear, of course, right? I hope so. <laughs> uh, we had a little sampling net and a little wire loop, and the loop was like I think it was one square meter area, right? And you had to put it down, wedge the thing between your boots, pick up every rock in that wire loop, wash the bottom of them, so all the bugs that were stuck to all the little hymenifera, the coleoptera, the other complicated scientific name, <laughs> which might sound like I knew what I was talking about, but I don't. Uh, and then we, they go, they'd all go into little sampling bottles and back at the lab then they would count how many of each bug type was in the bottle and then they'd do this upstream from the sewage works and at various points downstream from the sewage works and that was an indicator of the possible effect of the sewage works on the water quality. That does so there's a very, very similar parallel to what you were doing. Very similar. There you go. Sadly, we weren't in the uh, in the in the Southern Ocean or the Tasman Sea. No, not the Tasman. Whatever it is down there. Uh, yeah, the Bass Strait, but not Bass for very Strait. long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just popping into port. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. And did you see enough of the results? Did you are you able to draw conclusions from what you you learnt from that? Apart from what it's like to be on a on a research vessel. <laughs> we certainly did, and certainly the broader research group made some really cool. Um, you know discoveries beyond my one year um, working with them but personally the work that I did on the sea surface temperature stuff was there's not much of it in for the southern ocean and certainly none that stretches back that for that period of time there's lots of work that goes um, sort of way back further into the geographical uh, geographical <laughs> into the time scale whereas but the recent few hundred years haven't been looked at that much until obviously things like the Bureau of Meteorology started taking data so it kind of did really fill a bit of a gap there and so that was pretty cool. It's probably indicative of how this whole climate research thing has so many different strands so many different sources of input so we've 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 interviewed uh, people from Antarctic Research Division climatologists, oceanographers and so on but the, the global climate picture is really complicated and uh, well that's a fantastic story I'm really glad to have you on the show Rebecca because uh, I love that story there you are I can just imagine you drifting across the ocean bouncing up and down on the waves yes. oh now one thing when you came back on shore did you find that the uh, the shore kept moving under your feet for a while? Did you feel like you were still uh, on the waves? It certainly did. It actually felt... It was particularly bad when you were in small, confined spaces. So, obviously, as soon as you step off the boat, it was very strange. You felt like the very solid concrete ground was actually moving on a wave. But as soon as you got into something like a toilet cubicle, it got even worse, and it kind of almost came in on top of you. So it took me about three or four days to get back to normal. Ah, uh, well. Rocking, <laughs> rocking myself to sleep. <laughs> well, you're having a wonderful time out there on a fantastic windy day here. <laughs> oh, windy day. That's, uh, that's the thought. Uh, because I've got an interview that I recorded recently with... Uh, uh, that's, what, that's what we call a segue. <laughs> that's what we call a segue on radio, Rebecca. Uh, pumped Hydro. 
uh, I interviewed Professor Andrew Blakers, who is a world-renowned pi uh, pioneer in solar energy research. And so I've recorded this, uh, this piece with Andrew, and, well, here it is. No, not that one. That's, uh, that's our entry music. We don't want our entry music. We want <laughs> this one. And uh, how many times have you heard this? Wind and solar power can't deliver reliable base load power. It's the standard objection to electricity from renewables. So I went to visit the home of Professor Andrew Blakers, a pioneer of solar technology. It seemed fitting that it was a cold and cloudy day. 12 degrees, patches of light rain. And I asked him how much power the solar panels on his roof were generating. From solar panels, not very much at all. Maybe 5 or 10% of what might be generated on a bluebird sunny day. Well, if you have solar panels on your roof, chances are you're using technology that he contributed to. Sliver Solar Cells attracted an investment of $240 million. And Perk Solar Cells currently have sales around the world of $9 billion per year, rising rapidly. And on current trends, there would be half of all solar energy sales by mid-2020s. Well, it might not be a good day for generating from solar, but it is good for wind. I know, because I've just ridden my bicycle into a 32 km an hour headwind. But what if there was no sun and no wind in Canberra? Well, fortunately, the whole of the eastern seaboard is connected and we'll probably find it sunny or windy somewhere from North Queensland through New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia. Well, that means the grid is like a giant battery. Power is always being fed in somewhere. Still, it's not always enough. At the moment, the grid is 75% supplied by coal. Within a decade or so, this could easily reverse to 75% supplied by wind and photovoltaics. By the end of this year, South Australia will get 50% of its electricity from photovoltaics and wind and Canberra is buying enough photovoltaic and wind electricity to reach 100% by the year 2020. So very high penetrations of photovoltaics and wind do require some storage. High penetration means in the 60, 80, 100% range. So storage is going to be needed eventually. Okay, now if we're not generating enough power off the grid at the moment, off uh, solar and wind, uh, what else can we do? What about batteries? Batteries are important for behind the meter. They're in a house or in a company, and they're competing with the retail price of electricity, which is about four or five times higher than the wholesale price. So batteries have a great future for the next five or so years in electric cars, and in storage in buildings. But for mass storage, we have to find a different option. Well, what are our options there? Batteries are expensive still, we can use the grid. Is there another option? There is a 99% market leader. Pumped hydro energy storage is 99% of all storage around the world. It's off-the-shelf technology, 100 years old, and with beautifully engineered machines and equipment and know-how, and Importantly, no heroic assumptions, no developments required if we want 1 or 10 
gigawatts of storage, then we can ring up a company and they will build it for us. So let's imagine here we are at a pumped hydro installation. We're standing at the bottom of the hill. What can we see? We build a small reservoir at the top of a few hectares, another one at the bottom. We put a pipe between the two and in that pipe is a pump and a turbine. When there's lots of excess wind or solar electricity, then water is pumped to the upper reservoir and in the middle of the night and when the wind's not blowing, the water comes back down through that pipe, through a turbine, to recover that energy. Pumped hydro, farm dam at the top, farm dam at the bottom, the generator at the middle. How much do we need in Australia? To provide backup for 100% PV wind electricity grid in Australia, we need about 20 gigawatts of pumped hydro, which is not a great deal and is not particularly expensive. Well, not everyone is happy about building hydro systems on rivers. Is that really necessary? The important thing is that most future pumped hydro storage will not be on rivers. We are not going to be damming more rivers, hopefully, in Australia. In fact, the best sites for pumped hydro energy storage are off-river. 99% of Australia is not on a river. That is where we will go and look for good sites for pumped hydro. There's a huge opportunity there. I could start up, if I had the capital, a, a company, I could build a pump hydro storage facility and using the market, as we described earlier, I could actually turn a profit out of this, couldn't I? Well, in fact, there is a business called GenX Power, which is proposing to build a an off-river pumped hydro system in an old gold mine in North Queensland and to live off the difference in price between peak and off-peak electricity prices and also to surround itself with photovoltaic systems and perhaps some wind energy systems to further increase revenue. You've been looking around Australia for potential sites. What are you finding? There are a completely unlimited number of potential sites. Everywhere we look, we find excellent sites away from rivers, outside national parks, outside cities, where we can put a few hectare reservoir at the top and bottom of a hill and run a pumped hydro system. Importantly, these reservoirs oversized farm dams. Essentially, a bulldozer pushes the dirt from the middle to create an earth wall, maybe 15 metres high, and then the water is pumped up to the reservoir and goes down to the bottom reservoir when we need the energy. So there's nothing to invent here. The cost of these reservoirs is very well known. Any farmer would know how to build such a reservoir. The grid, the photovoltaics, the wind generators, the pumped hydro, what's it going to do to the cost of electricity to the consumer? We have been looking at 100% photovoltaic wind futures and we're finding that with the addition of pumped hydro, a quite modest amount of pumped hydro, it is quite feasible to run an entire country, Australia in particular, from photovoltaics and wind. Uh, there will not be blackouts, the grid will be stable, and the cost is essentially the same as running it from traditional fossil fuels. There has been an incredible price revolution in photovoltaics and wind. And of course, pumped hydro is 100-year-old technology, beautifully refined, off the shelf. If Professor Andrew Blakers is right, we can supply Australia's electricity almost entirely out of renewables using the grid, batteries and a few oversized farm dams. Sometimes the simplest options are best. This is Rod Taylor, Inc. 
And here we are on Fuzzy Logic, uh, your science on a Sunday. And my guest today, Rebecca Kay from National Science Week. And we're having a fantastic discussion about uh, uh, your little trips across the ocean there. Now, Rebecca, have you noticed in the news, uh, South Australia, the energy prices have been going up and down like crazy? Uh, very uh, variable energy costs, and that's because they're not producing any of their own power anymore. They're 50% uh, renewable energy, wind and so on. So they're now um, subject to the prices that are on the grid. It's very interesting, isn't it? And it's good to see that the ACT here, we're also committed to improving our percentage of energy that will come from renewable sources. That's right. It is it is very important. But as you increase, as uh, Andrew Blakers was saying just there, as you increase your proportion of uh, reliance on, re on renewables, on wind and solar in particular, then you have to deal with the variability. So what he's saying is that you have this big thing like a battery, and it's so simple. It's so simple. You just pump the water off the top, uh, buy the electricity when it's cheap, uh, let it run down to the bottom dam and it just goes round and around between those two dams. So it's, it's quite simple and he was saying that near Canberra there are plenty of potential sites and you don't have to dam a river. Excellent to hear. Yeah. Let's see um, how we go. Good engineering isn't always complicated. It doesn't always require the breakthrough science and there it is, a, a, a simple solution staring us right in the face. Now we might take we might take a break, and you've chosen a track for us here on Fuzzy Logic. And uh, if I press all the right buttons, it'll be oh, it's uh, "Beautiful People" by Australian Crawl. Oh, well, "Beautiful People" Australian Crawl. Oh, before we go, uh, now we're on Twitter at the moment. Uh, Rebecca has got her phone, her, her Twitter active. Our, happening. our Twitter. <laughs> you, you can get us on a couple of Twitter handles. A couple of Twitter handles. So we are working two at the moment: the ACT National Science Week. Uh, Twitter, which is at uh, NSWK underscore ACT, but also the Fuzzy Logic Twitter, which is at Fuzzy Logic Sci. That's right. So send us a tweet during the send show, us uh, ask us a question or uh, make a comment, and uh, we'll get you on air. Excellent. Uh, a bit of strange call here. Uh, yeah, here on Fuzzy Logic, we are talking great women scientists. And uh, our guest today, uh, Rebecca Kay from National Science Week, a great scientist in her own right. And uh, we've been doing a bit of research on a few interesting people. And uh, you, we were discussing oceanography, and which sort of relates to coral. It certainly does. Uh, yeah, and our, uh, our, our character now is Dorothy Hill, now a great Australian woman scientist. Tell, tell me about Dorothy Hill. Dorothy Hill. She is some, I'm ashamed to say, she's someone that I haven't always known so much about. She is, well, she was. Um, she died at the ripe old age of 90. And in her 90 years, she contributed a lot to the study of um, corals in Australia and fossilised corals at that. Now, she was uh, instrumental in setting up Australian institutions, is that right? She was. So there's, a, there's lots of things that she did first. Yeah. And one of the things that she contributed to was setting up the Great Barrier Marine Park Authority. So she was on the board sort of that was the precursor to that official government body. So, oh, And then realising that it was a national wonder, a scientific wonder that really needed better understanding. Yes, it was uh, taken over by by the government, and um, but she did contribute to to that throughout the rest of her life. But there was there's many things that she did. So um, she has a really interesting story in that she 
dedicated her life to the study of, yeah, as I say, fossilised corals. But she did it in a time that was quite, um, you know, it, she grew up in the 20s and 30s and she picked paleontology because it was, well, geology because it was something that was suitable for women at the time but it turned out to be that she had a really good grasp on the subject and her professors at uh, Queensland University sort of saw something in her that was really impressive and really nourished um, her uh, interest in the subject and encouraged her to go out and start collecting ancient fossils. And she studied at Cambridge University, so she was no slouch academically. Absolutely not. And in fact, when she graduated um, with her PhD from Cambridge, it took her only two years, which is quite unprecedented as it was. But she was the first female from um, Australia to graduate from that university in the subject. And I think she was only the second person from the Queensland who'd done it as well. So... It's pretty impressive. Right. Now, I wonder if at the time they appreciated just how significant something like coral paleontology would be. And now with your own research, Rebecca, uh, the the impact of climate change, and we're now hearing dire news about the state of the coral reef. It, it's, it's, it's worrying stuff, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it's actually really interesting. Her perspective on what she thought the coral reef was capable of actually got her in... Um, put her out of um, what's the word not out of touch but she got uh, put a bit on the backhand because she believed that the Great Barrier Reef was such a massive amazing force that it actually would be able to come back with the from things like the crown of thorns starfish which we is not so much you know the greatest threat to the reef anymore as you say climate change is obviously the greatest threat mm. um, but t towards the end of her career people sort of were saying oh the reef's not going to be able to come back it's not going to be able to come back but because her career had stretched so far into the quaternary, um, looking at how the reef had changed with things like changing sea levels over the last few hundred years. She she thought that the reef would actually be able to recover, maybe not with the same species of coral and maybe not with the same supporting the exact same species of fish, um, you know, the whole ec ecological system. But she she actually believed that it had a bit of um, But she, of she probably wouldn't have seen much of the current news on, on climate change and the speed of the impact that's having. That's exactly right. So she did, she died in 1997. So she has unfortunately, well, double-edged sword there. She's obviously not seen the horrors that have happened in this, you know, only this past year with the bleaching that's been going on. But uh, hopefully some of what she thought was true in that it is going to be able to withstand a bit of change because unfortunately it's it's not looking that great no uh, yeah. no it's a bit bleak with all the threats uh, for farming runoff nutrients ocean acidification and so on and i think people typically um it's often we lose sight of the the asset of i mean we can say, oh, well, you know, it's beautiful, colourful fish swimming around and great theme for a, a, an animated movie and so on. Yes. But it, it, it has a role in feeding us. Absolutely. The, the, I mean, and you're own, you've worked in fisheries, right, in, in the fish yeah, area. that's right. So coral is, is important for nurturing fish that's stocks, right? That's right, for nurturing fish stocks and, for, well, you know, for the intrinsic beauty of and you know importance of those ecological systems but certainly the fisheries that come near the the great barrier reef do depend on the a solid base coming from uh, the great barrier reef yeah and they're, they're nursing nurseries hatching grounds and so on absolutely 
Yeah, so, so she, she was a bit of ahead of her time in, um, you know, seeing the importance of the coral, of the Great Barrier Reef, and she really used the fact that it was there on her doorstep, you know, to spend a lot of her life in Brisbane and up further north in Queensland and, you know, really popped out whenever she could to the reef. But as she was studying... Um, you know, ancient corals, those are actually found obviously inland in the middle of, you know, the Queensland outback. So she sort of swung between the two and really did use the current, um, well, at her time, the current corals in the Great Barrier Reef to relate to what had what she was seeing and patterns she was seeing in the fossilised coral she was finding in oh, outback she Queensland. Oh, she's looking at uh, limestones and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so she found um, lots of stuff um, out the back in a place called Mundumbera <laughs> was her um, where she collected her f- initial fossils from. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Now, she she did a few other uh, unconventional things. <laughs> she did. <laughs> she did. She was quite the character. She, um, amongst other things, had her pilot's license, you know, just to pass the time, and was quite a car enthusiast, I understand. And a rally driver. A rally driver. <laughs> oh, I wish we could have got, had her on Fuzzy Logic. She I would know. have been a really interesting person. Lots of life, lots of character. Absolutely. A life fully lived, and um, it's good to see, you know, that the Academy of Science did recognise her work as well. So she was elected the first female fellow of the Academy of Science and um, also the first female president of the Academy of Science. She served a term as that as well. So she was recognised within the scientific community for her amazing work. Um, So it's... Well, there you go. And and I'm ashamed to say that before today's program, I didn't know anything about Dorothy Hill. So... um, I'm sure there's much more to learn about her as well and other amazing female scientists. Yes, well, <laughs> yes, there's, there's another amazing woman who is somewhat different, but mm. uh, she does reflect a few gender issues, shall we say, and I'm referring now to Hedy Lamarr. Now, Hedy Lamarr is famous for being a Hollywood babe, mm. having done quite a few big ticket movies and so on. She's described as amazingly beautiful, which was kind of an asset for her because it gave her entry that, but it was also a bit of a curse. Mm. And when we get in, into that as well, but what's her connection with science? What's a Hollywood babe doing uh, on a science show like Fuzzy Logic? Yes, it's a good story, isn't it? Oh, it's it's amazing. Well, she came from, uh, she had a Jewish parent and she was born in uh, 1914. She died in 2000. And she was married to this bloke who was uh, a Friedrich, I'm trying to read his name, Mink or something like that, Mandy. Mm. And he was an arms manufacturer yeah. right in uh 1930s Germany, he was selling arms to Mussolini and he was reputed to be the third richest man in Europe, right? And so he was married and he was not a very nice character. I think he was a bit of a trophy wife because he got this young girl, he married her uh, and so what was she going to do? But she was pretty pretty cluey and so she's sitting around the dinner table and there's people who are discussing arms manufacturing and, and so on and she wasn't just sitting there looking pretty, she was taking in what was going on. But the marriage was 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 toxic, and uh, he he didn't treat her properly. I, I think I don't think he saw her her value at all, and she had to escape. Now she part of her escape story was she hid in a brothel. Uh, yeah, okay, there you go. I, I'm not sure how long she was there for, but unfortunately, it meant uh, even having to do brothel duties at one point, which 
is not not all that pleasant. Probably the sadder side of her story. Yeah, it, it, it is it is a tragic part. But she got away to the USA. She escaped to the United States, and then she was spotted by um, the film guy uh, Meyer. I think his name was. Have I got the right name? Anyway, hmm. uh, she. Porter Towns, apart from just making movies, she married or not married, she got involved with a guy named George Anthel, who was a composer. Oh, okay. A composer. And between them, they came up with this idea of how to control a torpedo uh, using frequency hopping radio communications. Now, you think of the problem of how to steer a torpedo. The way it used to work was imagine those U boats, and they were a terrible, terrible threat to Allied shipping during the war. They were probably the biggest threat to the Allied war effort. Mm. And we had the fleet of German U-boats operating in the Atlantic Ocean. How are you going to steer one of these things? Because what would happen is is the the, the U-boat pilot would come up to periscope depth, line up the ship and then try and guess where the ship would be in, I don't know, four or five minutes' time when the torpedo arrived. Not easy. And uh, and the closer they got, the bigger risk they took. So how cool would it be, and use that word loosely perhaps, <laughs> to be able to steer the torpedo once the, it left the, the U-boat? Or actually, we're talking about allied U-boats here, so allied yeah. submarines. Yeah. Uh, and, well, if you just use a simple radio communication to do that, then the enemy can interfere with it. So she and uh, George Ansel had this thing which was free, uh, frequency hopping radio control. Now today, of course, we've got mobile phones, we've got uh, computer chips and all that kind of stuff, and they can um, you can encrypt data and you've got all that. How would you do that? without all that fancy electronics. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah. What a clever gal. um, What what they did, they came up with this device a bit like a piano roll. And uh, and the piano roll would, would time the frequency changes. So when you're sending the signal it it has to be at the right frequency of the of where you're receiving it so there's a there's a coordination between the sender and the receiver between the boat and the torpedo how would you do it well, they come up with a mechanical solution which was a brilliant idea and it didn't really work Oh, well, good stab in the dark, though. And it's amazing to see the combination of, you know, a smart scientific mind from Hedy Lamarr and obviously her composer friend as well, like an an artist and a scientist coming together. We do like to see that. So, and, you know, I I do believe that that, this was the precursor for technology that's used in Wi-Fi today. Exactly. And that's pretty incredible. That's right. You know, I think um, it's a lovely story also obviously lots of atrocities during the war but scientific uh, endeavor certainly has to speed up in the face of war and uh, you know this is obviously a really great story of someone who came from a situation that wasn't um, that great used her intellect and certainly the fact that she was discovered as a as a bit of a beauty to her advantage to uh, you know come up with some of the most um, you know we all rely on Wi-Fi today, and that's amazing. We do, we do, and innovative. Now, because of the technical difficulties, the U.S. Navy didn't start actually using it until the 1960s. <laughs> but, but as you say, Rebecca, yes, it's now the basis of modern. And when you, we've got our mobile phone, and you can tweet us. Yes, tweet us at, at Fuzzy Logic Sci. <laughs> yep, and. Um, we, we're using it. So now she has a bit of a sad ending uh, because 
Oh, before we go on to that, um, there, there was a, some, a couple of other funny things that she was involved with creating. And one was a, uh, a traffic stoplight device, <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, uh, is also very important in our modern day life. Everywhere. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure how that works. And this one was quite, quite quirky. Uh, a pill that gave you carbonated water. <laughs> Did you put it in the water or did you just take it? Yeah, you did. Fuzzy your mouth. It would basically, it would uh, gas in the water. And and she said, it, I think she wasn't like keen on herself. She said it tasted like Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> Her less successful inventions. Yeah, but, but it sort of gives you an idea of the sort of inventiveness that she, she displayed. Now, her later life wasn't all that happy because she didn't cope very well with leaving Hollywood uh, with, with the attention, the star attraction, and with ageing and being defining herself as a beautiful woman. So she then underwent a lot of surgery and so on. And uh, I think she she dropped out of Hollywood, and her her late life was quite reclusive. But a lot of a lot of plastic surgery to try and combat the f- effects of ageing. So. Not, 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 not a good way to say it. And you would try to think of what this woman's life would have been like in different circumstances. Absolutely. And I think it's really my favourite Hedy Lamar quote is about when she, um, her and her, um, the person that she worked on, on, on this, you know, radio hopping frequency, they finally got recognised for this only two years before she died. And um, her quote was, it's about time. So, you know, she was a bit of a sassy lady as well, which we like to see and obviously very smart. And yeah, a really lovely story. I'm glad we got to talk about her. Well, there you go. Today's Fuzzy Logic is is dedicated to women scientists. My guest, Rebecca Kay in the studio, National Science Week. I'm going to, uh, here's another, uh, another wonderful woman who's dedicating herself to science cause. And this is arthritis because in today's Ask Fuzzy column in the Canberra Times, we're talking about arthritis. So here's Rebecca, who I caught up with at the Multicultural Festival. Well, here we are at the Multicultural Festival, and I'm in the tent of Arthritis ACT, and I'm talking to Rebecca. Good, uh, it's afternoon now, is it? Uh, good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm enjoying talking to all the people at the various stalls around here at the Multicultural Festival, uh, but let's start with a really basic question, because I think it's always good to get the basics done. What is arthritis? So arthritis is usually it's inflammation of a joint. So your fingers, your knees, your back, your neck, your shoulders, anywhere where two bits of bone rub up against each other to do something mechanical, it's when that inflames, it becomes arthritis. And if it affects your ability to move, then that's a pretty big impact on your life, is that right? It's a massive impact. It also causes lots of pain. So not only does the joint seize up in many ways, it also causes lots of pain. So you find it hard to move because the joint literally won't move and you find it hard to move because you get lots of pain. How much do we know about the cause of arthritis? We know that um, there's well, there's many types of arthritis. There's over 100 different types. So some types of arthritis are caused from wear and tear. So most people know that arthritis is an old person's disease. It's just wear and tear of the joints and we, we think that we're stuck with it. But there's so many different sorts. There's sorts where your immune system actually fights your body and causes that inflammation. So there's many types of arthritis that cause that, including one that affects children. So kids from you know birth onwards can actually be affected 
by juvenile arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is another sort that people are very common, you know, people know a lot about. Rheumatoid arthritis is basically the body attacking its own joints and causing the swelling and the pain. Yeah, nasty, nasty. And uh, osteoarthritis? So osteoarthritis is generally the sort of arthritis that we know as as the wear and tear type arthritis. So it's the stuff that for most people comes on later in life, middle-aged onwards. Um, For some people it will come on earlier because they've had bad sporting injuries, accidents and the like, and the joint has never repaired itself properly. Just just don't get older. (laughs) You know what they say, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. You also leave joints that are working. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's a school of thought that says all parts of your body should wear at roughly the same time. I know, it's not fair, is it, because they just don't seem to. Well, the surgery seems pretty good. My dad had a hip replacement and I can remember him hobbling up the beach, but it seemed to work pretty well for him. A lot of people do find a lot of relief in surgery. The problem with surgery is that you really need to leave it as late in life as you can because even surgically repaired joints have a lifespan, so you're looking at at 10 to 20 years. For instance, if you're having a hip, hip done, they say 10 to 20 years of that hip, you can usually get it revised, like re-replaced once, but that's about it. So if you're looking at a hip replacement at 40, there's a very good chance at the other end of your life you're still going to have lots of problems. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you die with the, with the parts still working, that's okay. Is there any prevention? You can do any lifestyle things that make a difference? Exercise is the best thing. So um, keeping joints going. So whether you've got arthritis or you don't have arthritis, keeping your joints going at all times is the best prevention. For, for arthritis or arthritic pain. So even if you've got arthritis, keep those joints going. It will stave off the disease. It will also stave off the pain, and that's the most important thing for people. And uh, d- drugs? I mean, most of us like to try to avoid drugs, but I guess that's a complicated medical question, but uh, <laughs> what's your perception of that? Look, drugs are really a part of the picture for arthritis. Most people with arthritis will take a, a variety of drugs. Again, it depends on the type of arthritis you've got. So if you've got ar- if you've got rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile arthritis, you'll be on chemotherapy type drugs to, to save the body from fighting itself. If you've got osteoarthritis, it's usually pain relief type drugs and um, just treat the symptoms. Basically, absolutely, they just treat the, the symptoms. Okay, so you've got your, your stall here, uh, arthritis ACT. Just tell me quickly, what does what do you do? So what we do, what we're doing here today. Is we're really giving out information to people. We're promoting our message of move it or lose it. So that is you need to keep exercising. We run a lot of exercise programs. So we have a land-based program where we do Tai Chi and we do strength and balance um, exercises. And then we have a really popular hydrotherapy program. Hydrotherapy is really good if you've got arthritis because it actually relieves the pain as well as getting the joints going. Oh, so you get the exercise without the stress on the joints? Absolutely. And then the warm water just seems to have a pain relieving effect on the joints. So if you do hydrotherapy a couple of 
times a week, you'll actually find that your pain diminishes as a result. And I imagine a lot of your focus is within the older people, you know, people who would otherwise be a bit inactive. And what I hear is that people sit around, they watch television, they don't want to move too much. You, you have to get them out of their chairs and start dancing hydrotherapy. We do, we do. And in fact, that's why we do the land-based exercises as well, because a lot of them go, oh, no, I don't want to go near a swimming pool. You know, I haven't put on a cosy for many years. I don't want to be seen dead in that. And it's all about looks, you know. doesn't matter what age you are. We, we're all very, you know, keen to maintain our looks. Um, but it is, it's about keep getting that message out there that people need to move. The worst thing you can do for your arthritis is sit around in a chair watching TV. It's absolutely, you know, a no-go place. You need to be up and moving. Okay, you heard, Rebecca. Get off your backside. Dance. Do, do whatever you can, but, but get, get active. And uh, if somebody wants to get more information, how do they find you? If you, you can find us at the Grant Cameron Centre in Holder. So we're open Monday to Friday, 9 to 4. We love people popping in. There's nothing better. There's always a cup of tea or a cold drink from us. We're available on the web as well. So we're at www.arthritisact.org.au or our phone number is 6288 4244. Okay, give them a call because they want to hear from you and they can help. And you're right next door to my friends at the Deafness Resource Centre. So good on you. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca Davey, yes, great to meet her at the uh, Multicultural Festival, Rebecca Davey, and check out her answer in the uh, Ask Fuzzy column today's Canberra Times. And uh, when I asked her to write it, and I said, oh, just do something simple up front. What is arthritis? Oh, my God. And she said, oh, you what? That is not simple. That is not simple. <laughs> and, and if I quickly scan the article, it's got uh, there's osteoarthritis, there's rheumatoid arthritis, ankylizing spondylitis. So oh, wow. I can't know. Spondylitis, blur, <laughs> uh, which is a, a more uncommon one. 